All right, and we're recording. What is up, everybody? It is Chris Wagoner coming to you again with another episode of 100% Lawyerings. Today's guest is my buddy, Don Morell. I got your last name right, didn't I? You did. You did. Sorry, man. I, I don't know why. I just like I was like, oh, no, I think I forgot his last name. Yes, anyway, Don, like we've known each other for a while. Um, great guy, great attorney, good friend, uh, veteran. Uh, you were in the Air Force for a long time, right? I, I served in the Navy and I retired from the Air Force. So. That's crazy. So, all right, I want to talk about yeah. that because I've actually never really – I don't think I've grilled you about that in a while. So I, I want to – Probably not. Re-up on that because I know you, you're in the Arctic for a while. Like, I keep seeing the pictures that you're always posting of you in the Arctic, and I, I don't know. I want to want to know a little bit more about that. But anyway, disclaimer, uh, if you're listening to this, um, none of the things that Don and I are about to talk about uh, should in any way, shape, or form be construed as legal advice. Uh, this is all for educational and mostly entertainment purposes because I haven't done any research to prepare for this. I doubt that Don has done any research to prepare for this. And nope. while we know a lot about lawyerings, uh, the specific details matter. And so, like, the facts of your case are going to be different than what he and I are talking about. And, frankly, uh, case law research is probably going to be merited in order to figure out exactly what's going on in your case. So please don't construe this as legal advice because it's not. It's just us rambling for an hour or so. Um, and furthermore, please don't take this as any offer to engage in legal uh, legal services or uh, in, to engage in the lawyer-client relationship. Um, it's just us sitting around talking for an hour. So with that said, um, Don, if you could just introduce yourself. Yeah, hey, uh, that was some great lawyer speak, by the way. I'm very <laughs> impressed. I'm, get, I'm, getting <laughs> some pra- I'm getting some practice. <laughs> so hey, my name is Don Morrell. Uh, Chris said he and I have known each other for a long, long time. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Don, where do you uh, where do you practice right now, and what are you practicing? So, my office is in uh, Maitland, which just outside of Orlando. For people that don't know, um, I'm currently I do uh, brought up the Veterans Link. I do uh, veterans benefits uh, and help out veterans when I can give back to that community. I uh, I practice probate and uh, some civil litigation. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about your military career? Because um, I was just because obviously as we were you know we, we set this you know this uh, podcast up a few days ago and I was just kind of like thinking about what we were going to talk about and uh, I know that you did the Arctic thing so like like okay so what was what was your role when you were like flying to the Arctic and like when did you do that like how did that come about? So I flew in the Arctic and the Antarctic um, for I don't know 17 18 years or so. For the most part, I would do I would spend two to three months out of the year down in Antarctica, um, particularly during the period of time when the South Pole Station was being rebuilt. That's where we did a lot of our a lot of our work. So, I mean, a lot of people don't know that the military has these uh, operations. Uh, they call them MOTW, military, uh, military operations other than war. And uh, the operate the operations in Antarctica did fall under that umbrella. Um, There's probably some people listening now that that are familiar with the Navy. The Navy is actually the one that started that mission. And then as part of uh, Clinton drawdowns, if you will, the Navy decided that that didn't exactly fit with their mission. It was too expensive. And they tried to farm it out. So during that period of time, the National Science Foundation took over uh, the logistics operations for all the research that happens down there in antarctica so like the south pole station like how big is that 
Oh, it's pretty. It's pretty big right now. I think at the height of the season, I think they can have like a thousand people. Don't quote me on that, but I think they can have that many now. It used to be the dome, the geodesic dome that was built mm-hmm. uh, in the seventies. Well, that's been all taken down, and they have this uh, station that's uh, on stilts. Basically, they can keep rising it up as the uh, ice level rises, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. I didn't realize it was that big. Like, I never really thought about it. Like, my okay, this is don't laugh at me, but the most that I know about the like Antarctic and like being in the Antarctic, I learned from watching The Thing. You remember that old movie with? Um, That's awesome. Yeah. With uh, Cap, not Kevin Costner. Um, wow, I'm spacing on his name right now, but you know the movie I'm talking about. Yeah, the the real old, the real old black and white one. No, no, no. The 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 color oh, okay. one. It was like in the '80s with um, what is his name? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's like the major yeah. in that movie. Yeah. I love that movie. It's a, it's a it's a, it's a great it's a great old horror movie. Um, it is. But yeah, that's what I because like all right. So everything that I like when I imagine like living at the South Pole and like the scientists being in the South Pole, like it's like that. That's what I think about in my mind's eye. Yeah, I mean, we used to stay at McMurdo Station, and that's actually that's being rebuilt now too. But uh, you know, it was kind of resembled like an old mining town because it would get fairly warm. It would be warmer in McMurdo Station uh, than it would be back home in New York when I was at times. So uh, once it started, everything started to thaw, it would just be, be like a mud pit. Um, but when the weather got bad, it, was, it got cold, windy, and bad. <laughs> Did you ever stay there like during the winter? No, never wintered over. No, no desire on my part. Although it would be pretty cool to, you know, uh, to say you did it and to look out and see the southern lights all the yeah. time. Yeah. That's pretty I mean, cool. Just, the, the southern lights and the northern lights are super impressive, if, uh, especially from the air when you're flying. Pretty cool. Yeah, I've always wanted to do that. My wife and I were talking about that the other day. I think we were watching like a, we were watching that new movie with uh, Will Ferrell in it, uh, out of like Eurovision or something like that. Uh-huh. And had, like the northern lights in that. We were talking yeah. about how much we'd love to see that. Really cool. Yeah. Definitely have to do that. So anyway, yeah, man. So you did a, a full-on career in the in the military, and now you're doing veterans law. So okay, so because I don't do veterans law at all, like what is that? What is like, what is like the typical veterans law case look like? So I do, I, you know. So a veteran goes in, they have some type of disability post service, and they apply for benefits. You know, say 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 you broke your 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 ankle uh, uh, in a parachute jump, okay, and. Uh, while you're active duty and it healed, but it never really healed. Right. And you're, it always bothers you. And as you get older, you get arthritis. And then that, you know, the, the limp from that causes your knee to give you problems and your back. And so you go ahead and apply for benefits. Now, uh, a veteran advocate attorney cannot charge for services on an initial claim. So either the veteran has to put in his initial claim himself, or he has to, uh, have a veteran service organization like the VFW. Do they get like American Jag? Or Jag like step in and help out with that kind of stuff? Negative, never. No, once you're out, you're you're out, and they would, uh, you know, you may be able to get a Jag involved if you're going to be medically discharged. You should have representation there. But uh, after you get out um, and you try to apply for VA benefits, no, nope, no Jag. Speaking of Jag, did you know that uh, Kristen Polniak's a Jag now? I did, I did, I did, yeah. So I don't know how he's doing. Have you uh, talked to him at all? I haven't. I haven't talked to him in a while, but now that we're talking about him, I think I'm going to have to reach out to him and see if he wants to be on the podcast. It'd be cool to get a jab. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you should. I think you should. um, Okay, so I I, I follow him on Facebook, or I guess we're friends on Facebook. And uh, like his office looks really nice, man. Like every time he takes a picture of him in his office, it looks very nice. That's, That's cool. Yeah. 
I don't know where he is. I know that he was in Tennessee for a while trying to pass the bar, but it seems like he's gone on and, like, you know, do, doing the Jack thing. I don't know if you remember this, man, but, like, when we were in law school, like, I was, like, pretty pretty hard um, charging to try to get in as I Jack. do remember, yeah. And I don't remember the – okay, so I really thought I was going to be doing it. And, you know, I started, like – I actually started talking to, like, the guys. Like, they would have – you know, they would bring um, – Jag would come to the school – and you could like interview with them and talk to them and all that kind of stuff. And I seemed pretty poised to be in a, at least a, a, a decent position to like have a shot at making it, even though I didn't have any uh-huh. prior military experience. Um, but it just became one of those things where I knew that if I went JAG, that I would have to start moving around again. And like I had just like I mean you know this like I had lived in China for a year, and then I was in North Carolina. And then now I'm back in Florida and Orlando and like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm looking at passing the Florida bar and I just was like, I just wanted to settle down. I wasn't ready to like move, move around a lot more again because they were saying that like, you know, obviously, I mean, you've been in the military, you know, better than I do that they were saying like, okay, well then you just, you, you do like officer candidacy school and like whatever branch that you were in, <coughs> you know, who knows where you're going for that, you know, whether it be like, I guess Georgia, if you're in the army and like, if you're in the Navy, I think they were doing theirs up in like, somewhere up in like the Midwest, like up in the Chicago area. Uh-huh. And then, you know, after that, you know, once you get through OCS, then it's like, okay, now you're going to go do whatever your respective JAG course is going to be, which is, you know, like another six months of basically law school. And that's in a different place. And then after that, you know, then you get stationed. And it's, you know, yep. who knows where you get stationed. At the time, I think we were still in Afghanistan at the time. So, you know, you could be sent over overseas to do that. You know, which is, you know, really neither here nor there. But I was just like, I remember at the time being like, man, do I really want to do this again? Like another three years of bouncing around between place to place. And at the time, um, I think realistically what it was, I ended up breaking up with like an old girlfriend. And I was just like, man, I don't know if I want to like, you know, like, am I going to like, like, I'm I'm looking at 30. Like at the time I was staring at 30 and I was like, am I going to like, am I going to be like get into a serious relationship and settle down or? Like what's gonna happen here? So I just kind of like walked away from it and moved yeah, on. Yeah, it's a grind. It's a, you know, and then you know, then the deploy, then you know, when if you get deployed, it's more more likely than not it'll be more than that two weeks out of the out of the year. So it's tough if you're trying to run your own business. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the opportunity to do reserves is still there. Um, my brother's father-in-law, who's a dentist, is like he's an older guy. I think he's like in his. Mm-hmm. You know, He's in his fifties, and he does the the reserves, and he's pretty active in it. And I was talking to him about that, and he said that you know you could probably I could probably do like the reserves, but I mean I'm not really there yet. I mean I would love yeah. to do that. I think that like if I could get like you know this business like really off the ground and like really running, like maybe I'd look into it. But you know currently it's kind of like you know I just don't really have the time for it. I hear you. I hear you. Um. You know, I get asked a lot, a lot of times, you know, how was the transition for me going from the military to, to being an attorney? And, and part part of what I do as an attorney really mirrors some of the stuff I did in the military, which is kind of weird to say. I was an enlisted guy, senior enlisted. I retired as a chief master sergeant. You know, my primary job was a uh, flight engineer on C, uh, C-130 aircraft, LC-130s. Um, but what you end up doing is you end up talking to people and counseling people and i know you and your job too a lot of your job is not necessarily law related you're talking to people and telling them how to get through different situations and offering yep. your advice on how to do that yep. exactly what i did in the military so that i mean in that respect um even though uh, 
flying uh, aviation, military aviation, uh, flying Antarctica, Greenland, Afghanistan. Um, may seem a lot different. Uh, basically, in the end, what we're doing is helping people, talking to people, and trying to get them through bad times in their lives. Interesting. I never really thought about that. I thought that you, I don't know why I always imagined that you were like one of the guys that was like sitting in the airplane, like, I don't know, twisting knobs and pushing buttons and like monitoring data and stuff like that. That was my primary job, really. But as so, uh, that, that was my primary job and I flew, flew as often as I could. Um, but so when I went to Antarctica, yeah, we're flying six days a week, uh, probably putting in 10 to 10 to 14 hour days, depending on where we flew to. Wow. A typical flight, the typical day of the South Pole would, would end up being a 12 hour day. Um, but in the interim time, we're still handling uh, human re, uh, resource type, uh, human uh, resource problems or issues with people. People have problems back home. We got to figure out how to get them back home if, there, if there's something going on. Um, just all, all the regular problems that people have in life, just because they're doing a job doesn't mean that those problems didn't arise. And just because you're deployed, I mean, those same things pop up in Afghanistan. So, yeah, I, my primary job was a flight engineer and um, flipping switches and pumping fuel uh, on a plane. But you get involved in the other stuff, too. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I never really thought about it like that. I could see how and like obviously the military is a massive system unto itself that I, as an outsider looking in, it seems like you can only really understand it if you've been in it. And so that's why I think that like, you know, being, you know, being an attorney, I, I can totally relate to what you just said. Like that makes total sense to me that, you know, you already know how to work in a system and to move through a large complicated system and you've been helping people move through the system as well. Yeah, I can see how like that, that definitely translates to being an attorney because that's pretty much what we do at least that's one aspect of what we do absolutely so so like um and I, i've had this conversation with people before too so um you know when i was in the military i'd have somebody that would have an issue and i'd have to go advocate for them uh i'd have to go squadron commander or the base commander and i would plead my case for my guys so you have a hierarchy right so uh -huh. uh, this person couldn't necessarily go in on their own so you know acting as almost like a middleman and plead their case. And instead of uh, pleading to a judge, I'm pleading to a colonel or a general. And when the general says that's enough, I've made my decision, you move on. You take that decision and try to work with it. That's so, that's what I do today. Was the system set up that way? Like officially, that, that like you as the master sergeant or whatever your, whatever your rank may have been at the time to, to step in if the the, the, I guess the other enlisted men so chose for you to do so, or did you just kind of take that on yourself to do it? No, I think that's, you know, that's really part of the system. It, it, you know, it's a chain of command. So you follow, follow the chief, follow the chain of command and you, and, uh, you know, obviously some, you know, obviously officers are different in, uh, their open door policy, but most, I, I would say most base commanders would have an open door policy. Uh, but you, got to be careful with that because that could come back and, and by you and you're not necessarily um, doing yourself any favors if you go ahead and just jump right out and do that. So the best thing to do is follow the chain of command um, and that would and I was in that chain of command. Interesting. So is that one of the reasons why you decided to be a lawyer? Uh, I don't know why I decided to be a lawyer. <laughs> 
what is hell when you decide to be a lawyer, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I know I, I know what's funny is that we know, uh, obviously, I was a lot older than everybody when I went to law school, and, and uh, I get asked that question a lot. It's like, um, I, I know a lot of people always had a burning desire for the law or a burning desire to be an attorney or to be a criminal defense attorney. I mean, they, yeah. they get very specific on what they had a desire to do, and, right. and that, that drove them through law school. My situation, on the other hand, was the desire to um, be able to work later in life, uh, despite any physical impairments that may come my way. Yeah, true. And just continue to be productive. And, um, you know, I always thought I'd have this epiphany where if I went to law school, I'd be this really smart person. Um, <laughs> really, I mean, because I never I didn't go from high school to college. I, I just went from. Uh, you know, I went from high school in the military, got out for a while, worked in worked in uh, corporate America, Fortune 500 companies, Eastman Kodak, General Electric, and then went back in the reserves, and then ultimately back on active duty. Uh, and I didn't complete my bachelor's degree until uh, I was, I don't know, almost 40 years old. Huh. And I, I went and got my master's. So I always had a, I guess, a chip on my shoulder that maybe I wasn't smarter than as, as smart as other people or smarter than I am because I did, I took that route. And seriously, I thought I thought Miami, the, the learning that would occur in uh, um, law school would, would just make me that much more that much more smarter. Nice English, <laughs> but but uh, that much smarter, you know. And and yeah. uh, in, in the end, you learn that everything. Uh, and, and as the the older I get, everything is just it's work. Everything's yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and there are benefits to that work. Um, you are no. Uh, no better which path you choose, I guess. I mean, if you have the work ethic, you have the work ethic, and you go ahead and do it. And and, and, and the, couple that with the desire, I always try to help people through situations and family members, and I think the, the law just fit in with that. Yeah, and I think um, one of the interesting things you were kind of alluding to is that, like, there's, like, the veil that you pull back on being an attorney once you go to law school. And, like, once you start, especially once you start working. Yes. And like you see all these movies and you see all these TV shows and they're all like really romantic in like the the quest for justice and the fight for justice or you know like these these amazing moments in trial where they just like they have like the gotcha moment where like the you know the the person that you're cross examining on the stand just breaks down and you know oh and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids kind of moments yeah uh -huh. and, you, and you get in there and like not that there aren't those moments where you have where you really like, you feel like you did just amazing work and like justice prevailed or, or whatever it might be, you know, like you, you just like, you, you crush this gigantic deal with some, with some other company or, or whatever it might be. But realistically, like those are like, those are career defining moments. Those aren't like the every day, the every week, the every month, even the every year. It's really more, you look back and you're like, man, that was a good day. That was a really good, like I worked hard for that and got there. It's not like, you know, like on suits, you know, where right. guys like just like killing it every single day with like, and like the one thing that always like that, that, that blows my mind when I watch TV, like lawyer TV shows, and don't get me wrong. I love lawyer TV shows. I still watch them from time to time, especially lawyer movies, but like, it's like they have only one case going on, you know? And it's like that entire episode or like that entire series, that, that season is them working on one case and one, one case, case only. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, there's like 50 cases going on, and you have to work all of them 
not equally because you, you know how it goes. Like cases are – every case is yeah. And also where that case is at uh, also matters. So like you know, we were talking about uh, before we got on you – know, before we started recording – that you know, like I've got discovery responses due in one case. So like, obviously that case is getting. Mo- oh, come on now. Wow. Don, you still there? All right, technical difficulties. So um, I think I was saying something along the lines of just like you know. Like those big moments, you only have like you know you have those a few times in your career, and you look back on it. But like realistically, like it's not happening every day. I mean, I, I think that the closest that I could connect to, you know, like TV and movies is like you know you get a big win in trial, but obviously the trials don't look like they do in TV. But right. maybe working as a criminal defense attorney or working as a state attorney, I think that you have a lot more justice moments because you're kind of working in it every single day, all day, every day. You know, criminal law is the application of justice in the real world and, you know, whatever that might mean. But, you know, like with, with personal injury cases, since that's, you know, I guess my wheelhouse, you know, justice is, is making sure that my client gets what the case is actually worth. But, you know, and, and like there would be failings of justice where, you know, like let's say that my client has, you know, is brain dead after an accident and it's not their fault. And the case is, I'm just throwing out numbers here, the case is worth like $5 million. And the person who hit him only has $10,000 in coverage and has, doesn't have two pennies to rub together. You know, like that's not justice being done because my client is now going to be, you know, bedridden for the rest of his life. And it's going to cost, you know, $100,000 a year to just keep him in that facility for the next, you know, however long he lives for. Let's just say it's 30 years. You know, like that's a lot of money. $10,000 is clearly not going to cover that. And it's not my client's fault that he's now, you know, bedridden in the hospital for the next, you know, 30 years. Right. So, you know, obviously justice being isn't going to get done there because, you know, how do you pay for that? You know, his family is now going to be stuck with that bill and, and, and that, you know, care and obviously the emotional impact that goes along with that. Um, but that, those cases don't happen every day. You know, like those cases are few and far between. Whereas, you know, you get people that get arrested for bad reasons all the time or, you know, you have, you know, uh, someone who gets shot and dies, you know, like they're like even if you put that person away for, you know, fifty years, you know, like justice would be, you know, there's no justice that really gets done there because they're, they're dead, you know, like there's no bringing that person back. I mean, I think you couched it perfectly. I mean, in a criminal case, you the, the reference to justice is definitely more warranted. In a civil case, you're arguing about money or some type of. You know, ultimately, that's what it is. I tell people ultimately that legal decisions are are really financial decisions. And and some people have a hard time with that because, you know, they're thinking the scales of justice. What that person did to me was wrong. But ultimately, you can't keep continuing to fight. You know what I mean? I I mean, I have people come into my office that it's like it's the principle of the matter. I'm going to fight till my last penny. Everybody says that until you have to start to pay. (laughs) And um, in that respect, you know. You're not really looking at justice per se. You're just looking to, to, to come to a reasonable solution to a disagreement that people have had. Or, I, I mean, there is a, a moral aspect to it, but we, we don't litigate a moral as, uh, aspect in, in, the civil, in the civil community, or even in, in the criminal community for that matter. It's, it, it, it's what the law is. And the law, you know, it's, it's a sad thing 
to tell your client that the, the law and common sense are not intersecting in your particular case, but they can't help that. Yeah, and it's, it, it, it's always a nuanced conversation, not just to have it with clients or potential clients, but just to have it with lay people in general, people who aren't attorneys. Yes. That, you know, because most people, and, and part of this is the training of being a lawyer and then also living it, right? Yeah. I can, I, and, and that is, is, is separating out the moral and ethical convictions that you might have with a particular matter with what the law is actually going to do. Right. So, you know, like, I'm trying to think of a good example that isn't super political. Um, because I'm trying to stay away from politics. Yeah, I hear you. Show, you know? Aren't we all? But, but like, you know, um, I'm just, I, I don't want to dig deep, deeply into this, but like abortions that would be the easiest one to talk about. You know, whether you agree yeah. or disagree with abortion, the law says it's allowable under certain circumstances. And so, right. you know, but like it, it definitely breaks down even more. Than, like pain and suffering. Pain and suffering is a really good one. Pain and suffering mm -hmm. in... Uh, in, in, in personal injury cases, right? Like a lot of people really don't like pain and suffering and they have good reason not to like it, but the law allows for it. Whether you like it right. or not, it's there. And, you know, depending on what the law states, I know that in the state of Florida, for car accident cases, you have to prove a permanent injury before you can even make an argument for pain and suffering. You know, so if there's no permanent injury, there's no pain and suffering argument. And, you know, a permanent injury obviously would be one that's, you know, ongoing in the future without, without ending. So right. at least that's how I would say it. I'm sure the loss is a little bit different. But. Well, I, I mean, you, you bring up a great point because sometimes it, as attorneys, we don't know what to do. Like if you have a, a person that's, that's uh, suffered a car accident and they're in pain, I mean, legit right. pain, there's, there's reasons why they're in pain. Um, they, um, Every, every day they wake up in pain and but they still continue to work right but um so so what do you have them come into to the courthouse do you have them come into the courthouse and uh, uh the courtroom i should say and and if they squirm in their chair the, the jury's going to look at them and say oh look at that they're just just faking it or if they sit there still and straight up and watch what's going on and the jurors are going to say look at them they're not even injured but yet these are clients that, that wake up every day. Like, like when you wake up, you sleep wrong on your neck, right? And then you wake up and it's sore. You go make your cup of coffee and you grab the coffee and you go, oh, oh dang. And then you go out to, you know, you pick up your briefcase and you feel a twinge again. And you go out to your car and you feel it again. Um, in, in the case of sleeping wrong and twisting your neck, well, that's going to go away. You know that'll go away in a day or so. But if you've been permanently injured in an accident, that's not going to go away. So how do you get that across to right. to somebody who feels uh, biased, I guess, for lack of another term? They feel biased about uh, pain and suffering. So, right. yeah. 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 And, I, and so, I mean, like, I guess to answer that question directly, like I, that to me, like, is all about jury selection. Yeah. You know, when you get in there and you're talking to the different jurors, because, like, they exist. And, and, and sometimes, you know, like, you know, we all have them. Biases are a thing. We all have them. Like, in some way or another, they don't, they're not necessarily bad, good or bad. But, you know, when I get in front of a jury, and, and this is usually the line that I, that I use, is, you know, you might – I'm sure you're a fine juror, but you might be better for, like, a battery case than yes. you are necessarily yes. for a car accident case. Because right, right if, if you have a bias against persons or a, like pain and suffering, you know, obviously, uh, as a plaintiff's attorney, 
I don't, you know, I can't have you on on this case because I need someone that's going to at least reasonably look at pain and suffering. I'm not necessarily looking for somebody who's like, yeah, pain and suffering is the greatest thing ever. Everyone should get pain and suffering. I'm going to award every single person that I that I have in front of me a million dollars for pain and suffering. Like, obviously, as a plaintiff's attorney, like, I'm not going to be upset if that happened. But, right. you know, I'm not necessarily like, – realistically, I know that I'm not looking for that guy because that guy's going to get cut by the defense. So it's like, you know, you're always looking for – to try to like, I guess, call the the jury pool so that you get those good guys. But you know, I guess I'm, I, I feel like I'm into jury selection now. And we were kind of talking about yeah. this, you know the difference between how you feel the law should be applied versus what the law actually is. You know, I'm sure there's some strange person out there that thinks you know domestic violence batteries shouldn't be an actual crime. Well, you know, sorry <laughs> to say, it actually is, and you know, it's that people are still going to get arrested for. Well, like like marijuana, like that's a good one. I you know I'm guarantee you there's yeah. lots of people out there that think marijuana should be legalized in the state of Florida, but it isn't. You know, like it's still a crime, and you know at least in most parts of the state of Florida. And you know therefore you know if you get arrested for it, you can get arrested for it and punished. And having been a you know criminal defense attorney that handled you know uh, you know marijuana violations, you know I can tell you that most people aren't arrested and taken to jail if they're caught with weed if that's the only thing. They're usually like cut, you know, the, the, the cop, you know, officially arrest them at the scene and then cuts them loose. And then right. they get like, you know, they have to pay court costs and cost of investigation. And they probably get a withhold, you know, like not even an official adjudication of guilt. But yet still, they're still being put in the system and it's going on the record because it is it is technically a crime. So. You know, you're, you're almost going back to when we started talking about, um, about law school, per se. And I thought, I, you know come away with this uh, real wealth of knowledge. Um, and I kind of poo-pooed that idea. But in reality, what, we, what you do get from law school is almost a history of the nation, how we've evolved from different yeah. things and how things are viewed. And uh, in that respect, law school was uh, a real joy. I mean, just, just digging into those and seeing how things have evolved. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazingly robust system that we have. Yes, and I don't think we—I don't think as a nation we give ourselves credit for that system. Is it flawed? Absolutely. We, we, you and I have just discussed all the flaws of this, but I don't know if there's a better system. Having traveled around the world, and uh, you know, uh, certainly in Afghanistan, they didn't, didn't see a system like that. And uh, you know, Europe's a little bit different system. And I've, I've been to Iceland, and their system is a little bit different, and New Zealand is a little bit different, but. I still think ours is the best. Well, I think that one of the ways that I kind of boil that down is that it, it, it's the – first of all, jury trials, right? So like you know, for better or worse, a jury of your peers, whatever you want to call that, whatever critiques you might have of that. But a jury of non-lawyer citizens who sit in judgment of the facts at issue, right? So right. whatever that thing is that you – either did or are accused of doing or you need to be made whole based on you know the actions of another and you get to stand up there in front of those people and make your case and then the other side gets to stand up there and make their case like yes like you said there are flaws but like that just that basic system is better than any that's out there and you, you know say what you want to about the specific laws and 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 obviously what the law is, you know, limits what we as attorneys are able to say, and obviously then obviously influences how we advise our clients as to how they should behave, how they should act, 
what they should do in, in that particular circumstance. But at the end of the day, you know, you might, you know, if you and I are at odds against each other on a case, you might say that possession of marijuana means one thing. I might say that possession of marijuana means another thing. Well, guess who gets to make the decision? Not you, not me. A jury does. Not the judge. Six strangers, yeah, <laughs> right. Six strangers are going to sit down. Not in most cases, anyway. Right, true. Yeah. <laughs> Six strangers are going to sit down, they're going to listen to both of us talk way too much, and then they're going to pick. And it's a beautiful system, man. It really is. Like, that was one of the things, that's one of the things that I have come away from in, you know, my short career is that the system is beautiful. It's flawed, but also it's kind of amazing. And, and actually, uh, go back to being an attorney is, is you're trying to, you know how things have been done, you know, kind of what should be done, but things aren't cut and dried. You know what I mean? You could go ahead and be creative and come up with, you know, uh, like you're talking about a view on marijuana. Well, yeah, I mean, what everything is, can be gray and you want to try to uh, tell that story so that somebody can actually interpret it. Uh, in, in favor of your client. And that's really what all, being the advocate is. Um, being able to transform those thoughts into somebody else's head so yep. that they can think somewhat like you. Yep. Yep. My whole thing is, is these days, to, to piggyback off of that, because I 100% agree with what you just said, is trying to be reasonable in the assessment of my client's case. Because when I first came in, and I think a lot of attorneys do this, um, especially litigators, you want to rah-rah for your client as hard as you possibly can. Because that's what you're taught to do. Right. You're taught, in law school, you're taught, you know, you're advocating for your client, and you are. And, I, you know, every day I am. But you do no one any favors, much less your client, if you push forward a case as aggressively and as emphatically as possible when the evidence may support a weak argument whereas if you dialed it back a little bit let's say you dialed it back a few degrees then the evidence supports a much stronger argument for your client a hundred percent hundred percent agree um the challenge is is trying to uh, educate your client on that aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've <laughs> you know, I've had clients say that I, they didn't feel I was advocating for them. Well, um, particularly in a, in a courtroom setting, um, you know, I made the analogy earlier about a commanding officer. Once they said that's enough, you take that as, as that being enough. In the courtroom, you know when you're pushing a judge too far and you don't want to bias, have him biased against your client because uh, a, a lot of things hang in the balance. So sometimes you do have to back off in the courtroom uh, for lack of another term. I'm not saying you're giving up advocating for your client, but you know that that's, that's the fight. That's the battle you don't want to fight at that particular time. Yep, you got to lay the record. You know what I mean? Like I've definitely said that before, like where the judge starts rolling his eyes. And I'm like, okay, judge, you know, like I'm, I'm not going to say like I wouldn't say it literally like this. But something to the effect of like, okay, judge, I can tell that you've already made up your mind. But if I could just quickly lay a record and yeah. get my, I'll finish, you know, finish the argument out and get the case all out there, knowing that the judge is going to likely rule against me. I've also like, I mean, again, going back to my early days, like rah rahing, there was yeah. uh, one particular judge that I was um, put in front of for a number of months when I was at the public defender's office, and uh, I came in there rah rahing, and you know, I've got 
100 plus cases in front of that one judge, right? Like you get to know the judges pretty well when you're a public yeah. judge or a state attorney. And um, I did not win her over. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and while, you know, I don't think that she did, you know, she made any like, you know, um, you know, unlegal un rulings or, or whatever, you know, like she didn't, you know, I think she followed the law. But like, you know, you know how it goes, man. Like there's that gray area. I didn't get any favors. Right. If you know what I mean? And I do was, know what you mean. <laughs> and that was, um, you know, again, like it's just, it's, it's all a learning experience. It's all like they call it the practice of law for a reason, you know. Like you're, I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to get better. And that was one of those, one of those learned, one of those learned experiences that you know you don't want to. Just like you said, you don't want to push the judge too far because if you push him too far, and I actually had a, a now that now that I'm thinking about it, when I first came over into the civil side, I had a I had a hearing in um, in Daytona. And it was, it was interesting, man. It was a, a punitive uh, – okay, so, again, like, at that time I was on defense side. So the, the plaintiff uh, – the, the particular facts for this case were my client was driving down the road late at night at, like, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And he was driving – I want to say on I-4 in Daytona. And he hit a stationary police vehicle on the side of I-4. So this, this police officer had pulled over on the side of the road and was, like, talking on a cell phone. And my guy hit him doing like 75 miles an hour. Yeah, like nightmare scenario for the cop, right? And like, I mean, it was bad, man. Like, you know, Jaws of Life to pull the cop out. Like, they, they, they started conducting a homicide investigation because they didn't think he was going to live. And by some amazing miracle, I mean, the human body is amazing. He lived and, and was more or less fine considering how bad that accident was. You know, I mean, like, I think he had like low back pain was what they were really going after. And I think he had, um, I know he had. Uh, I was at the I was at his deposition and he was back on duty. Yeah, and it was one of those things like we're talking like eight months after the accident, you know, and he was like in his mid forties, you know, he's not like you know he wasn't like in his twenties or anything like that, but he was you know right. back on back on duty. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, my client had been at the strip club prior to this, and so obviously there were allegations of drinking, and they had filed a punitive damages case against my client because in the state of Florida. If you are believed to have been under the influence of alcohol while driving, while in an accident, that's a presumed punitive damages claim. Right. And so I get tasked with arguing against a punitive damages claim when our client was, you know, he wasn't charged with DUI. Like there are arguments, there are actually pretty good arguments to, to, to get rid of the punitive damages claim because there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that my client had been drinking at the scene. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, yeah, so anyway, I get in there and I start arguing to the judge against it. And within, like, five minutes of me making the argument, the judge had pretty much made up his mind. Because it's motion for summary judgment, right? You know, it's, Oh, yeah. It's easier for him to just be like, oh, well, let the, well, let the jury figure it out. But, like, I, I remember I, the judge was, like, kind of, like, countering me, you know? And I was, I, was, I was trying to change his mind. And I was kind of pushing back against him. And he got annoyed with me. And there was a, a co-defense counsel that was there also arguing. And as soon as I got done making my argument, uh, the co-defense counsel, like, he led into it with, we're not going to adopt the position of co-defense counsel. You know, it was like one of those things yeah. where he kind of was like, I'm <laughs> going to immediately distance myself from you. And I'm going to make a different argument. And I, I still use that kind of as my – that and, and the judge that I was in front of when I was in criminal defense, when I was doing criminal defense, as kind of like my, my uh, benchmarks for, all right – there's a there's a time when you can push too far, and you gotta read the room, and reading the room is important, especially with judges because you gotta be in front of them on a regular basis, or 
you know, maybe you're not. Like, you know, it, it's different with, with when you're a public defender or an assistant public defender because you're in there every single day. So they can right. get an idea of who you are as an attorney and not just as an attorney but as a person. And if they know that you're just kind of that attorney that pushes, likes to push and likes to argue, they'll get over it and they'll know that that's just, you know, oh, that's Mr. Wagner. He's, he's, he's an arguer. And, and we'll be fine at the end of the day. But if, if that judge doesn't really know you, if they only see you like once every six months or once a year, you know, if they get that bad flavor in their mouth of you, the next time they see you, their first thought is going to be like, oh, it's this guy again. What, what, is, is he going to do the same thing again? Like, I don't know anything about this guy other than the fact that, you know, I was done. I was making my ruling at the 15-minute mark, and he decided that he wanted to argue for another 15 minutes wasting my time. Yeah, you're 100% correct. I mean, you kind of uh, lead into another area is that lay people, and even when you become a new attorney, you realize how little time you have in front of the judge yeah. to tell your story. So you have to really narrow down the legal issue that you want to discuss. And, and as, a, as a lay person, you want that judge to hear your whole personal story. And unfortunately, that, that can't be done. And uh, again, you're back to educating your client as to what you can do, and, and they, you have them in your office, and you talk, and you come up, and you, and you strategize, and you know they, they're in 100% agreement, but then you have the hearing, and you present the case, and, and maybe it doesn't go uh, 100% in their favor, and now they, they question what you've done, and that you didn't tell the judge their story. That, that gets frustrating at times. It really does. I remember one hearing I had... Uh, civil hearing and the judge asked me if I had anything else to add and in my frustration I said well the only thing I'd like to add your honor is that I object to everything that's happened here today (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and and as soon as I said it I'm like oh I'm going to be back here but (laughs) did the judge did the judge say anything no no I didn't even get the eye roll but it's like you know, you know. Sometimes judges do what they they have. They're overworked. They're human. Right. They have heavy dockets too. Yeah, but they make um, mistakes. It happens. I think sure. in that particular case, the, the judge started to hear evidence on a motion that wasn't noticed. Okay. All right. So and then and then actually ruled on that motion that wasn't noticed. And it's Interesting. Like, yeah. This, that yeah. Would be, that would be. I would agree with that. I don't think that that can happen. But it's one of those things too, where like, you know. Sometimes they just do it anyway because they're like, you know, I don't know what kind of motion it was, but if it was like a discovery motion or something like that, he was probably like, I mean, like, what are you going to do, appeal it? You know, I mean, you could and you'd win, but right. what's, the, what's the ultimate, like, what's the ultimate end game here? The judge is probably just like, I'm just going to go ahead and rule on this bad boy just so I don't see it again, yeah. you know, even though technically they should have noticed it or whatever. I had a buddy of mine that was actually kind of like had an issue with that a few weeks ago, and it was a discovery motion. It was a... Um, he had sent out, you know, uh, discovery notices and the opposing counsel was like literally like a month late on responding to discovery. And so my friend files a motion to compel and like they set the motion to compel a month after that, you know, after he files a motion to compel. So he's like two months out from getting discovery, regular old discovery, right? There's been no objections uh-huh. made to his discovery requests. So they're not, there's no substantive issues as to his filings, just that there has been no response to the filings. And so, like, that's the motion to compel, right? The motion to compel is uh, he's had, like, 30 days. And realistically, even though the motion only says 30 days, once it's filed in a herd, it's been 60 days, right? Right. And so uh, he gets, uh, you know, uh, correspondence from opposing counsel, like, 
I think 10 days before the hearing is set because my friend had, you know, made technical, mis technical mistakes on the filing requirements for the notice, right? He had technically filed the notice, but I think it may have been like, it had missed the deadline by like a day or something like that. And he was like, so do I like refile the motion to compel? And I was like, no, keep it there. Like, let him worry uh -huh. about that. Like, let him make that argument about whether or not notice has been complied with. Like, he's 60 days outside the motion, to, outside of your deadline to, to comply with your discovery. Like, the judge is going to look at that and be like, what is going on here? Like, you've had 60 days and, like, you're, you're making a notice argument? Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was the, the opposing counsel was, like, you know, threatening, you know, my friend. And then he ended up filing a motion for protective order because I guess, you know, he had like a deposition scheduled or some, some, some whatever, you know, and, uh, the judge apparently saw the motion for protective order and they were like, and, and, and this opposing counsel was like, well, we need to continue the motion to compel so we can hear the motion for protective order. And the judge was like, no, we can hear it. I have time. We can hear the motion, oh. for, motion for protective order before we do the motion to compel. <laughs> and, uh, they, they ended up complying with discovery there. They, they just worked it out and got the order set and that was the end of it. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, game, games being played all around. It's just like, I, like, when I was a defense attorney, I hated that crap. Like, that was, yeah, not my, yeah. that was not what I did. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I did my job as an attorney. Like, I would read my discovery requests, and I would respond to them as I felt the request merited the response, right? But right. when it came to, like, responding within a, in a timely fashion – if I missed the deadline or I needed more time to deal with it, like it was because I needed more time to deal with it. It wasn't like I'm trying to push this case out another month or two because realistically in a two-year case, a month or two is meaningless. So yes. it's like that's just petty. And so to me, it was always like – like most of the time if I ask for a, 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 an extension for discovery, it's because I as the attorney had only gotten – like the complaint, like I only was made aware of the case ten days Wait, before yeah. discovery was due. Yeah. And so it's like I don't have, I don't have, I can't get this done in ten days. Can you please give me like an extra thirty days so that I can like call my client, read all the paperwork, you know, see what's going on, and like even figure out what's going on in this case before I can respond to discovery. And like every single time they say yes, of course, you know, like who's not going to yeah. say yes to that? But like you know, this stuff like what happened to my friend? Like what is that? That's garbage. Like that is absolute garbage. Like maybe that other attorney is busy. Like maybe he really is. Maybe he's got that much going on. But like realistically, like you've got sixty days. Like you've had that motion to compel on your calendar. You know, yeah, maybe he didn't comply with notice exactly in the way that he needed to. But like, you're well over the thirty yeah. days to comply with a thirty days of standard, thirty forty days of standard, right? You've had 60. Like, you've got no excuse to not do that. And I bet I, – I mean, I don't know if the judge read that, that, you know, read the motion to compel and, like, realized all that. But, like, a lot of judges are really smart to that stuff. Like, he probably yeah. – he probably looked at that and was like, oh, I know what's going on here. Like, no, we're not – yes, I can hear your motion to – motion for protective order because you want to know what the – you want to know what the answer to that motion to protective order was? Denied. You have you have you have thirty seconds to make your motion for protective order argument, and then he's going to deny it, and then they move to the motion to compel. So, wow. I don't know. You know, it's it's um, I don't know how I got off on that, but yeah, like you know, like motions, man. Like you never really know how they're going to turn out. I guess. No, you don't. And, and, and that's the other thing that uh, the lay people don't understand is that uh, each judge can run their courtroom a little bit different, yeah. and. Um, they, they, knowing how they work is, is easier to get through the system, but then, you know, they, we have uh, 
you know, we have Google and then a client will come in and say, well, what, you know, you can do this, this and this. And it's like, well, the judge doesn't do it that way. And they'll say, well, that's not the law. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it does comply with the law. It's just how they do it. And it's, uh, I don't know. Again, it's, it's the practice uh, portion of, of, of our profession. You, you just got to keep moving forward and continuously try to improve. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's every day. It's an everyday kind of thing, you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. do you have any good cases right now? I don't have, um, I guess good, any good uh, issues in your cases? I don't have any any earth shattering uh, issues in my cases. It's just trying to trying to move things along and trying to, um, you know, we're Orange County's moving back. You know, they back to phase one for COVID. Oh yeah. We're back on, you know, but I, I think a good thing to come of all this would be the video hearings, being yeah. able to, because uh, um, I, I think ultimately it's good for clients because we're not spending all that time going to a, a 10 minute or 15 minute right. hearing right? Um, and waiting around, particularly on the cattle call motions. You can stay in your office and work and then go ahead and take the, take the hearing. Yeah, but it does present some challenges. Um, so I've started to make sure that my written motions are more, um, you know, inclusive than I guess they would be. You know, if, if you had a short hearing, you get the motion in, uh, and then go ahead and, you know, orally argue your case. But now I think it's better to have all of your arguments in, in, on the written motion and do rely less on the oral testimony and then just kind of present that case at the video hearing. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done, I actually haven't done a video hearing yet. Like before, um, you know, before COVID happened, like it wasn't super uncommon for me to do like, you know, appear telephonically on, on yep. minor stuff. Like, like that motion yeah. I was just telling you about, like if I was, you know, cause, um, when I was working for my old law firm, I was based out of Melbourne. But if uh -huh. I had a case in like, let's say Orlando or in Daytona or like Miami or wherever it might've been, if it was like a five minute motion, I'm not driving three hours to Miami and three hours back from Miami in order to argue a five minute motion. I'm gonna, you know, right. I'm just gonna pick yeah. up the phone. But the thing is, there were more substantive motions that might've lasted like 15 or 30 minutes. And uh -huh. like in, in those cases where you actually like you, you might want to argue like one of your cases or like you wanted to actually present some case law and it might be something a little bit more novel than just say just say like a five minute discovery motion. You know, you I would drive and appear or appear in court for those ones. Now, with this, with covid, I think that those like I think I would still if obviously if if if, you know, whatever the phase that we're in would allow for it. If it was like a motion for summary judgment or a motion to dismiss, like a case killer or a case maker kind of a motion, uh -huh. I'd still appear for that. But like even yeah. for like motions for protective order, which I think historically I would have appeared for, if it's a long ways away, man, I'll do video motions like because everyone's used to that now. Like right. we're all over that. You don't get that kind of like eyebrow raise from the judge if you don't show up for a motion like that anymore, which is what it used yeah. to be. I think it used to be more less persuasive, but more in the sense that like the judge kind of like expected you to show up. Like, right, know, right. If this was important to you, counselor, you would have been here. Clearly, you don't think it's important enough to be here, kind of thing. That's kind of, I think that's gone the way of the dodo now. I think so, too. And I think the, uh, a lot of the judges see the value to them of moving yep. things along on their docket and, and it, they can hear more cases per day and just have them more relaxed. Let's face it, shuffling in and out of the uh, hearing room, yep. you know, 
10 times a day, that, that takes up a lot of time and they're just sitting there. They're not doing any legal work. Yep. You get the chit chat and stuff like that. You usually get to that yeah. adds to that. So, but that, but that said, man, like I'll never not want to go to court. Like I love going yeah. to court. It's, it's just one of the, it's one of the reasons I became an attorney. I really do enjoy it. That said, you know, I don't need to do it, you know, like six times a week. And, you know, if obviously if I can keep myself from having to do like a, you know, a four hour drive, you know, turn around right. there and back for a 30 minute motion, obviously I'm going to, I'm going to keep myself from having to do that. So, right. so yeah, I, it, like, it's weird. Like I think that COVID as terrible as it's all been, it has been a amazing jump forward for the legal industry. It is really, really, really revolutionized in a good way, the legal industry, because, you know, I am like a computer, like I, I am remote, like even though I have an office and I'm sitting in my office right now, you know, when COVID happened and they did the stay at home order, like I complied, like I have my issues with everything. And I actually, I think I've got some stuff out there about it, but, um, you know, I complied. I did what they asked me to. I worked from home. You know how easy it was for me to do that? I just, I, I, I packed up my laptop. I put my printer in the car and my monitor in the car and like set up and I was good to go. Like no yeah. different. And realistically, like I wouldn't even need a monitor. I would really just need a printer and a phone in my laptop and I can work from anywhere that I want to. So like seeing the rest of the legal industry kind of like catch up to that has been really kind of neat to watch. It is pretty cool. So we have IP phones. So we took our phones home. Um, and then when the receptionist answers the phone, she transfers it to our extension, just like we're in the office. There's really no difference except that we're not in the same building. Right. Right. Yeah. That is, and, and that's what I'm talking about. Like I had, um, um, I've got a friend who works in, uh, marketing and uh -huh. his firm, obviously he's not an attorney, his firm, like they, they did the same thing, right? Just like pretty much everybody else. Everyone had to like start working from home. So all the employees had to start working from home and all that fun stuff. But when I started talking to him about all this stuff, like his response was that they actually like increased productivity when right. their employees started working from home. And it actually ended up being a good thing for them. And I think that they're, I know that they're back working at, they're, they're back in the office again, but it's gonna be interesting to see how how everything kind of like, like when the dust settles from this thing, because obviously coronavirus, we're going to get over it eventually, whether it be you know, yeah. next, next month or next year or however long it takes. It'll be interesting to see like how businesses work, because if you're like, I have another, like a, a neighbor of mine works in the financial sector and they're also working from home. And I think they're still working from home. But like, what if you could like, what if you could just work from home and you could not have to pay your overhead for rent? Right. You know, why not do that? You know? And then people can stay home and, and do home stuff. Like maybe you can get, I mean, cause you know how it goes, man. Like you were in the military, you know, like you, you, maybe you can neither confirm nor deny this, but you know, like I get the impression that in the military, there's a lot of guys that can just like sit around and put their feet up, you know, like what yeah. if you can get the same work done and put your feet up at home, but you can just like instead focus, you know, four hours out of the day and get the same work done in that four hours that you can get it done in eight. Yeah, I, th I think that's a that's a valid argument, uh, particularly in the post-COVID world. That's that's for sure. You know, um, not to sidetrack too much. It seems like we're sidetracked a lot here today. We haven't seen each other in a while. I think that's why. Yeah, but um, that's 100 percent lawyerings, man. That's what we do. We just talk about whatever. Uh, um, like uh, the flex schedule, where people work four 10-hour days and then get you know get that every other Friday off or, or yeah. Um, that, that, that presents productivity problems. Cause I really don't, I think people become less productive 
hour nine and hour ten, um, from my experience, because uh, there were some places that did that in the military, nothing got done except chit chat because it, people's brains were were, yeah. were done. They weren't yeah. they weren't ready to do anything, yeah. and I think. Um, the post-COVID world maybe has exposed some of that. We'll see, though. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, my own personal experience is, you know, well, not to break it down into any too great a detail, but, you know, I um, have learned over the years, like, when I'm most productive and when I just need to kind of, like, call it a day. Because I, I would agree right. that, you know, like, once you get, like, if you're really working, I mean, like, really, really working, like once you get to that eight hour mark, especially if you haven't taken a break, eight to nine hour mark, like your work product starts suffering. Yeah. So like for me personally, like what I do in, in anticipation of that is I put the stuff that doesn't take as much brain power at that time. Yeah. And then I can just, you know, so I can still like, you know, nice and thoroughly do that work. But, you know, I save that. Like I do, like I do my reading and stuff in the mornings because I'm, I'm a morning person. So uh-huh. I have to do like case law research, you know, like heavy, the, like that, for me, what that's the heavy lifting. I try to put that in the morning, but that's just me personally. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. I kind of do some of the same thing. I kind of set myself up for the next day. At the end of the, at the end of the at the end of the day, I try to set myself up for the next day and do that light stuff that I'm going to actually re-review tomorrow or something to get by that. All right, Don. Well, I think we're about at an hour at this point, man. So okay. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to do this with me. And uh, let hey, me thanks for having me. Yeah. Sure. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you plug whatever you got going on? Um, well, if um, you know, like I said, I do uh, veterans work. If anybody's got any uh, veterans that could use some help, I could maybe point you in the right direction. If I can't help or, or uh, figure something out, I still want to give back to my veteran community. And um, if any probate issues, please give me a call. Um, maybe the next time we talk, we can chat a little about civil litigation and probate. How? Uh, the intersection of those two areas are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I don't really know a whole lot about, so I would be interested to learn more about that. I, I 100% yeah. agree. All right, so uh, what's your contact info? Okay, uh, you can reach me at Don at KendrickLawGroup.com, K-E-N-D-R-I-C-K, all one word. Um, the office number is here, 407-641-5847. Um, we do Zoom. I, I now do Zoom consults, telephone consults, in-person consults, and mobile consults if you'd like me to meet you somewhere. And I'll wear a mask if you need me to meet you somewhere. Put a mask up. Right. Yes, right. Yeah. Of course, my mask has a uh, American flag uh, insignia on it. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my man. Uh, it was good talking to you. I really appreciate it. All right, and- Chris, thanks a lot. You have a great day.